Hi, it's Fraser here. And it's Tom. Happy Brexit Day. We have a fantastic Brexit Day special coming up for you on the podcast in just a second. But first, we just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of our readers, all of our listeners, and all the people who have supported us over what's been a pretty crazy three and a half years. And we particularly want to thank those of you who donate to Spiked. Spiked is free and we want to keep it free. And donations are the best way to keep us going and growing. So thanks so much to all of you who already give. Um, and if you don't give, but you'd like to, we'd just like to let you know that it's really monthly donations, which is the best way to support Spiked. One-off donations are brilliant. They're always well received, but even something like £5 a month can really help us plan for the future and steel ourselves for the battles ahead. It's really easy to do. You can just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the big red donate button. Thank you and happy Brexit day. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me for this Brexit day special, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. And we also have as a special guest, the Brexit party's Inaya Follerin, a man. Hi. For the first time I can say to you that Brexit is definitely happening. The UK will tonight end nearly half a century as a member of the EU. We'll look forward future to working with you as sovereign. If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. How could this happen? What everybody wants to do is put Brexit behind us on January the 31st, then move on. In the run-up to Brexit Day, there's been a lot of debate over whether we should celebrate the occasion. Some say we shouldn't be gloating or rubbing Remainers' noses in it, as Michael Heseltine said. ERG chairman and staunch Brexiteer Steve Baker even says that Leave supporters need to be magnanimous. There's been controversy over whether Big Ben should bong for Brexit and outrage over the minting of a commemorative coin. Tom, what's your view? Surely Brexit Day is something to celebrate. Oh, it's definitely something to celebrate. And I thought it was really interesting um, this week with the Brexit Party's final time in the European Parliament, in which they got up and did this very minor stunt, you know, waving these very small union jacks, something that they were banned from doing previously as of just a very small kind of level of protest and the kind of outsized reaction to it from everyone on Remainer Twitter, you know, suggesting this is classless, this is gloating. And as you say, this like broader conversation about our Brexiteers rubbing people's noses in it when they want Big Ben to bong or they want their commemorative 50p coin or whatever it happens to be. I find it a really slightly ridiculous point that some people are making, um, partly because we're not just celebrating the fact that Brexit happened, that we voted for it, and now we're going to leave the European Union. It's also celebrating getting over three and a half years in which um, particularly a lot of the people moaning at the moment were fighting tooth and nail to stop this being implemented in the first place. You know, three and a half years of MPs trying to block the will of their own constituents being implemented, the unelected House of Lords getting involved, the courts being dragged into the process in a pretty unprecedented way. You know, leave campaigners being dragged through court cases, just aimed at kind of dragging them down. To go through all of that, you know, having to go through what now, two elections, a European election, as well as, you know, the vote itself, all of that, you know, trench warfare against Brexit, for those people to then turn around and be like, okay, we get it, calm down. I think it's just, there's incredible kind of brass neck on display. Mm. And whilst, you know, there is some kind of discussion about, you know, this shouldn't be too jingoistic. And I mean, you know, arguably some of the conversations can lean towards the ridiculous some of the time. I don't think people are that really bothered about the symbols, about Big Ben bonging, etc. But what we're celebrating here is something actually really positive. You know, we need to remember that. This, This isn't just a kind of jingoistic display about Britain getting out from under the thumb of Johnny Foreigner. This is about it's really as part of the kind of story of democratisation in this country, you know, from the levellers through to the Chartists, through to the suffragettes, through to today. It's also about the story of, you know, European people 
rejecting and resisting EU diktat, you know, through the battles over the European constitution and Lisbon and the Greek crisis and all the rest of it. Brexit is really important in all of that, because particularly in the EU context, this is the one vote against them that ended up being implemented. That's something that's really worth celebrating, I think, not just for us, but for people across Europe. NIA, you were there in, in Brussels when Nigel Farage was kind of silenced and stopped from doing his little celebrations. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely astonishing. You would think that in this kind of incredible moment, even for the European Union and the UK, you would see some kind of reconciliatory tone. And they tried to kind of strike that in the previous speeches before Farage. And there was a lot of kind of romantic talk about cooperation in the future. But actually, when it came down to it, when Farage actually spoke, they cut off his mic and actually insulted him. And that really kind of just demonstrated the spirit of kind of just anti-democracy, that actually something incredible, even if they don't like it, it is the reality expression of democracy in this country, something that should be respected. And when it's finally happening, just to kind of strike in such a nasty tone was really telling. What was the atmosphere there like? Because there's a lot of, you know, most of the MEPs, especially British MEPs there, probably have been Remainers, probably they are, you know, mm. being forced through this against, you know, it's not something they want to do. What was it like? How did they respond? Yeah, so it was one of the first times that I'd actually been in the European Union and it was astonishing that kind of everything that is said about it from the Brexiteers is fundamentally true. It is <laughs> this kind of sanitised, stale environment where there isn't this kind of you know, heart of democracy, this back and forth. So even though this was an incredible moment um, when the withdrawal bill was passing in the EU, there was still a kind of weird kind of dissipated energy where no one really knew what was going on. And so, you know, obviously you had some Remainers sad crying with their kind of pseudo, um, kind of pseudo um, talk of, you know, this is the end of the European project and Britain and all of this kind of catastrophizing. But in terms of the Brexiteers, it was just astonishment, surreal, happy excitement. And because at the end of the day, we know that this is just the beginning and it's there's a lot more to come. Ella, what's your thoughts on the kind of run up to Brexit day? Well, I mean, in terms of the reaction from Europe, one of the interesting things to note, and he, he comes out with a lot of crap, but Guy Verhofstadt's speech <laughs> in the European Parliament was quite telling because lots of the members and the individuals of the kind of celebrities like Guy Verhofstadt in that chamber have not just been striking kind of sad tone, but also a, a defiant one. And he said, you know, this should be a lesson to us in the European Union, because next time when Britain comes back around, when we try and rehash a union, it shouldn't have any, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something along the lines of it shouldn't have any opt-ins or opt-outs, any exceptions, any rebates. I mean, basically like you get locked in and you don't ever get let out again. Um, So the idea that they've learned anything from this experience (laughs) is limited. (laughs) And that is is a nice little way for leavers to pat themselves on the back and say, actually, if we ever doubted that we were uh, wrong about this, we weren't. The European Union really is this kind of corrupt, really is this defiant in the face of democracy, really doesn't like us. It's a good thing we're going. But when it comes to the celebrations, I mean, uh, like all things, in relation to Brexit, it's something that could have been and should be something positive or, you know, just something kind of standard, you know, mm. like any kind of political event that happens in history marked with some kind of, uh, even if it isn't a celebration, a sort of an event. And mm. um, because it's in relation to Brexit, it's been turned into this thing that's embarrassing, marked, um, you're some kind of little Englander if you go along and and cheer it along. I mean, I am not going to be singing God Save the Queen or any of those tunes. Why um, not? That's, <laughs> that's, that's just not me. Um, but the the important thing to note is that if people try to paint this as a 
as Tom said, jingoistic event, what they're really missing is that actually vast numbers of people won't be going. And that's the task, that's the kind of challenge going ahead because we haven't, even though we've won the battle in terms of we are leaving the European Union and has to be said that after one, uh, literally 1,317 days, <laughs> it's taken us a long time, but we've done it. The challenge is that through those 1,300 days, people have felt really battered down. So lots of people will be staying quiet on this day and will be feeling, you know, even ashamed or scared or reluctant to come out and celebrate. And that's the kind of, that means that we've still got a fight on our hands to win the Brexit future. Because Mm. the first process, this is just the technical bit that's Mm -hmm. happened. Now the challenge is what do you do with the post-Brexit Britain? Just think it's also important to remember, like, Previous to the general election, we had these kind of Remainer marches, the people's Mm. vote marches, Mm. and they were always overestimating the numbers and kind of clinging on to that narrative that the people now want to remain and all of these things. So I think that it, as you said, it's more than just kind of celebrating the formal process of leaving the EU. It's become so much more than that kind of celebrating that we still have a democracy in this country. And I think that that's much bigger than and something definitely to celebrate. We were kind of talking about what lessons might have been learned. It seems that the EU Mm. has learned uh, the opposite lesson for Brexit, if, if Kiefer Hofstadt's comments are anything to go by, or even, you know, the way the EU responded to the European elections yeah. um, in, in last May, where actually the outcome of the election made no difference to who was uh, chosen as, as EU commissioner. Other people that might not have learnt the lessons are the left. Tom, did you want to talk a bit about that? And I think it's been quite interesting because I think especially since the general election in December and the point where the left had a resounding defeat or the Labour Party, as controlled by the Labour left, um, had a resounding defeat. And you're starting to see some of them kind of start to crawl out the woodwork and kind of say that the project of Ultra Remain is what cost it for them, suddenly starting to make arguments which sound like watered-down arguments are the kind of things that we've been saying for a very, very long time. And I think it's important that we don't really let them get away with it because mm. I think throughout the Brexit process, from the referendum onwards really, that even throughout the campaign, it's completely destroyed the left's credibility, not just its electoral standards, because Brexit really represented, I think, everything that the left is supposed to be about. It's supposed yeah. to be about democracy. It's supposed to be about the principle that ordinary people should have as much clout, if not more, than the people who have influence in society and have a platform. It's supposed to be anti-capitalist, and yet they were, so many of them had thrown their lot in with the neoliberal European Union. So we saw this really bizarre situation in which even people on the left who still gleaned to kind of left Euroscepticism, which was a kind of shrinking group of people at that point, all of them just turned tailed and ran away from the Brexit vote. And the reasons they gave for it were just so incredibly thin. It basically yeah. boiled down to they didn't want to be on the same side as Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. You know, they dressed it up as, oh, this is about being tactical. There is this xenophobic wave that we cannot be seen to be riding in any respect, talking up this kind of post-Brexit dystopia in which, um, you know, migrants were being deported and which, you know, we'd have deregulation. Again, missing a lot of the policies and not to mention the migration policy of the European Union you know, just complete nonsense because they felt like they basically didn't want to take one stand in what they saw as a culture war. Yeah. And in the process of that, they shopped all of their own principles. And I think we just can't let them forget about that really, because it's been really striking. You know, it's like Michael Foote used to talk about, his dad would always say to him as a piece of advice, if you ever want to get the measure of someone, you should think to yourself, what side would they be on in the Battle of Marston Moor? You know, that decisive battle between the King and Parliament during the Civil War. And I think what side were you on? Not necessarily in just in the question of the Brexit campaign, Mm. but the fight afterwards to make sure that Brexit was delivered, I think is that test of the 21st century and the left failed it completely. 
I just think that it's just another demonstration of how insular the worldview that has become, that it's almost become an existential threat, that even any expression of like Brexit, such as like the 50p coins has mm. been such a <laughs> huge fiasco. And instead of, you know, responding to the way that the political landscape has changed, they've just chosen to double down on it. And I think it's, it's really unfortunate. The 50p coin um, has been a particularly hilarious mm. episode. Um <laughs> Andrew Adonis saying that he's going to boycott it. We had Alistair Campbell saying that he would insist to any shopkeeper that gave him <laughs> a 50p coin that he would ask for two 20ps and one 10p or some combination of those. Uh, if, you, of if, those if you want like an indication of the kind of class dynamic to Brexit, I think the image of Alistair Campbell refusing a shopkeeper's filthy, you know, 50p <laughs> Brexit coin is quite a uh, useful example of that. And also some slightly more unsavoury depictions of it, especially on um, the Holocaust Memorial Day, people mm. sharing pictures of the 50p with the swastika on it. Uh, obviously, that's all a bit ridiculous and shows really the fragility of anti-Brexit campaigners at this point. If they, if this is all they've got to mm. row about, if this is all they've got to complain about, then you would have hoped. And I think they really have realised that they've lost the argument. But in relation to the left, the thing that struck me is that there's been sort of two reactions. On the one hand, you've had specifically within the Labour Party, people like Ian Lavery and others coming out and saying, oh, you know, hands up, we didn't listen to the poor people and we got burnt for it. And, you know, making this really kind of really unbelievable uh, defence of Brexit when you think, for like, where, where were you for the last three years? Yeah. But absolutely framing it, not in terms of, we fail to respect the political agency of working class individuals, but disaffected people moaned and we didn't have our ear to the ground. Uh, that's the kind of way they're framing it. And so, you know, they're again, completely missing the point. And then the other side is I've been kind of, it's hard to tell yourself away from social media at the moment because there's just so many funny things going on there in relation to discussion about this. But the people that have spent the last three and a half years saying Brexit's going to, you know, kill your local postie and destroy the single mum that lives down the road from you and, you know, all these apocalyptic things about how it's going to affect people who are less well off. And now saying, ha ha ha, I can't wait until you lose your job. Let's see what happens. You know, obviously Terry Christian was yeah, one yeah. of them who extreme got, example, went, but- <laughs> extreme example, went particularly far when he said that he would, you know, buy a big issue off the pitiable saps that voted for Brexit. But there's that sense of now the kind of relishing in the up in what they see as the impending disaster, like, Mm -hmm. you know, all the lights are going to be switched out at midnight on the 31st. So, you know, in both senses, they've missed the point of what's gone on with Brexit. But to try to put it in a hopeful note, I think that for a left that does believe in a kind of left-wing populism that could come out of this, the celebratory thing is that you've got, you've got such fertile ground at the moment for some real political change. I mean, we have to remember that it wasn't actually really the European Union that was the exciting thing in all of this. It was the prospect of leaving it would allow ordinary people mm. to be able to hold their politicians to account. So yeah. now it's the time when actually the real fight begins, when you decide that you don't like what your politician says on housing or things like that. So mm. it's a, it's a very exciting time to be politically active, I think, for a left-wing populism, whether the left and the Labour left is up to that challenge, mm. I think is doubtful. My, my fear, just to 
tag something onto that really quickly is that the opportunity has been so roundly squandered yeah. that um, it's going to take a very long time for anything calling itself left to try and reconstitute itself. And that's a real shame. This is not necessarily even just the case in, in relation to the UK and a Jeremy Corbyn, you know, lifelong Eurosceptic led Labour Party, but you see it across Europe. You know, mm. there was this moment of left wing populism in the form of Syriza or Podemos or Jean Luc Mélenchon in France. You know, there's been little pockets of it, but what's happened time and again is that they've completely destroyed their credibility and in the process found themselves losing support because they've thrown their lot in with the establishment and with the pro-EU establishment. They've always pulled back from the precipice. Now, in certain situations, it was far more pressing um, and they were often in situations where they were far more up against it in relation to, you know, EU austerity. So maybe you could understand that, but particularly for the British left, who had such an opportunity here, you know, Brexit was basically just given, offered to them on a plate and yet still they found themselves basically becoming synonymous with anti-Brexit liberals just being drawn into that orbit on these very moralistic grounds, I think is even more kind of shameful in many respects because the opportunity was there and they just refused to take it. I wanted to talk maybe a bit about some of the real lows of the past three years, whether that's the crazy meltdowns of the Ramonas or (laughs) some of the mad predictions. I'm thinking, you know, not only are you going to lose £4,000 a year, Donald Tusk says it's going to be the end of Western civilization as we know it. There's going to be super gonorrhea thanks to the lack of drugs. There's going to be a rise of dogging in the southeast (laughs) as lorry drivers, this was in the Times, by the way, paper of record saying that because so many lorry drivers would be queuing up at Dover that it's inevitable that illicit sexual activities would follow. Does anyone have any kind of particular highlights other than that? (laughs) (laughs) Or lowlights, I should say. For me, it was the, it was a combination of things, specifically fears about uh, the the one thing that comes to mind was the kind of Airbus scandal, Mm. non-scandal. The continual use of workers as a stage army to kind of frighten people um, and the misrepresentation of things like what was going to happen to the automotive industry, companies like Airbus, essentially the continual threatening of workers with their Mm. jobs and this idea that people had to choose. It was was fine for the political class who were going to have a, a job either way, but workers had to choose what they wanted, food and their plate and money in their pocket or their political desires as expressed through those kind of continual financial scaremongering. I mean, like you can take all the, oh, you're racist, oh, you're stupid, all of the stuff like that slightly on the chin because you can, you know, it's just words, you can brush it off. But when people are actually talking about threatening your jobs and making working class people, I think, genuinely frightened Mm. about the future, I thought that was really despicable. And thankfully, I mean, it's been, it's been proven wrong and there's noise that the pound's going up and everyone's all right because the, you know, Brexit now we've got some kind of sense of stability. All those things never were proved true, but that was a real low, I think, that, and, and a reminder that actually the political class are not on the side of the workers. And when push comes to shove and they want to get their own way, they'll throw us under a bus. I suppose one positive out of that is that people didn't necessarily buy into it and didn't, you know, didn't believe the threats, but Tom. Chris Snowden has written something for today, as this is going out on on Brexit Day, just recounting some of the kind of maddest examples of Brexit derangement syndrome, as it's often called. And it's worth remembering, partly because it's funny, but also partly <laughs> because um, it's so ridiculous, the kinds of responses that happened. You know, you had people previously of um, seemingly sound mind who have been driven literally mad by this process. You know, some of the examples, you kind of forget them because there's been so many of them. But, you know, A.C. Grayling, you know, a, a, a very distinguished <laughs> academic and professor up until this point, a few months ago was suggesting that the British Navy were going to sink a frigate in the South China Sea in order to distract from 
the Brexit crisis. You know, you had Carol Cadwallader, who's become an Orwell <laughs> Prize winning conspiracy theorist, suggesting everything that, you know, Russia was behind Brexit through to quite recently, as Chris points out, I'd even missed this story, the idea that Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore were in Italy to try and elicit the support of uh, Matteo Salvini in creating the conditions for a no-deal Brexit. No evidence of this whatsoever. I think they just, were skiing, weren't they? They were skiing. And <laughs> he'd, he'd actually tweeted it as a troll saying, I'm at a Bond villain convention or something like this. And she took the bait so instantly. It's, and the list goes on and on. Andrew Adonis, Paul Mason, all these kinds of people. And I think it's just really quite interesting. And there's something about Brexit which drives these people mad. I don't really know exactly what it is, but it's almost like just the imposition or the restatement of the idea that ordinary people should govern society and that the way in which society was going which they felt was always towards this kind of more managerial more technocratic politics in which the smart people in the room made the decisions and we very gladly just kind of took them as they were given to us um, as soon as that was disrupted it sent many of them literally round the bend and i think that um, has not only been a constant source of amusement this last couple of years is also quite telling in some respects as well and i yeah, continuing on with that, for me, it was this so-called government of national unity. I think yeah. for me, that was just astonishing. Not only are we going to ignore and delegitimise your vote, but we're going to kind of impose a government from the top down, intentionally excluding anybody that actually kind of supported <laughs> Brexit and say that that was a government of national unity mm. and then, you know, get a second referendum through and you know, show that as completely anti-democratic. And it just shows the authoritarian instincts, mm. you know. But it was going to be an all-women government. I mean, yeah. doesn't that make it That dope? makes it all okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, you know, we've had a rocky couple of years, partly because of the weakness of Theresa May and her government. We had an even rockier, perhaps, time at the start of the Boris administration. I mean, I wonder if people wanted to talk a bit about some of the kind of court cases and shenanigans that went on there that led to the election and, you know, the rest is history. And one of the highlights of that period was the Stop the Coup protests, which were, you know, organised by people like Paul Mason and Owen Jones, protesting that we were living under a kind of fascist dictatorship and that democracy was being taken away and being silenced yeah. by the Remainer Parliament essentially being put on hold. Oh, it's just part of the kind of intellectual loops that they had to go to in order to justify the extremities that they were going on. You know, mm. frame your opposition in the most degrading and demeaning of terms and that will legitimise any action that you take, which is obviously, you know, the government of national unity, as I mentioned, this yeah. stop the coup, fascist, racist, all of these completely incorrect terms. And so I think that it's just a manifestation of the same thing. Especially with that whole mess of uh, Boris Johnson's, his initial stint as the yeah. kind of prime minister in lieu was worrying because you had all these, as Anaya says, these really kind of uh, people kind of using double speak, saying that they were arguing for democracy and saying that they were against a coup while at the same time trying to overturn um, a massive democratic mandate. And it was all quite nerve wracking, but at the same time, it was actually a very exciting time because it, you started to realise really then, I certainly did, how far Brexit was pushing at the limits of British politics um, because you had questions about whether, you know, Boris Johnson wasn't perfect throughout that the question the whole prorogation question mm. the relationship of our politicians to the queen to the crown whether or not that worked questions about the constitution all these things that are really fruitful and really exciting and necessary that you could never imagine have happening before and even though it came in the context of a parliament that was incredibly divided of a huge amounts of hostility the fact that we came out of that and that the reason why we came out of that was because 
okay Tories, but it, because it was the Tories felt the pressure. Whenever, when has this ever ha- happened in history before? The pressure of the populace yeah. breathing down their neck that we ended up with the positive result that we have at the moment. Mm. So. It was a scary time and I remember really biting my nails thinking hey, this could go either way. Mm. But I mean, what a fantastic time for politics when everything was up in the air. I mean, it's, it's worth remembering that just over the course of the past three and a half years, if we could ever forget it, is that it was, it was almost like every institution of our law and our politics was just weaponized to try and stop Brexit from happening. And as you say, it was a you know, horrendous period in many respects, but it was also incredibly clarifying, you know, first of all, because it made clear that our political class, such as it exists, really didn't believe in the principle of democracy. They didn't really recognise that they were put there by ordinary people in order to exact their wishes. They saw their role as something far more paternalistic, far more in terms of effectively using their higher judgement over the kind of ridiculous passions of of the crowd and the rabble. That became really clear. It's also put a lot of strain on a lot of our institutions, the way in which the House of Lords and the question of the House of Lords has been brought back to the fore front of political discussion, even yeah. to the point where the Tory party seems like they're going to have to make some sort of proposal in relation to the House of Lords. At the moment, it sounds quite tokenistic, sending it up north, making it some kind of regional Senate. You know, we're far off kind of abolition or anything particularly radical, but nevertheless, it's forced those kinds of questions. And in the debates, as the withdrawal agreement was going through Parliament in various different moments, you saw the kind of unfinished business of the kind of democratic you know, revolution in this country in some Mm. respects of this battle between people who think in a kind of Edmund Burke role that their role as electors is not to do what people want, is to do what's good for them. And on the other side, that kind of more radical democratic idea that actually it's the people who are sovereign. And this whole process has reasserted and burnished the principle that yes, the people are sovereign. It's led to some strange situations. The fact that you've got like Tory grandees going on TV, you know, you see like people at IDS talking about the sovereignty of the people. It's odd. (laughs) It's strange. Not the people you'd expect. Not the people you would expect. But nevertheless, it's forced that question again. And talking about where we go from here, it's quite clear that we've got to sort of deepen that argument going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, Brexit has become far more than just leaving the European Union. It has brought to the surface some of these really fundamental questions that were relatively fringe issues in the political domain. As you mentioned, the House of Lords, the Supreme Court, whether or not we need a constitution. And I think that's why Brexit is hopefully just the start of getting to the deep rooted issues. And obviously, as well as as you, as you said, we've le- we've learned about these divisions. We've also learned about some really serious and stark divisions in society. You know, class has reasserted itself as a kind of important factor in our politics in a way that many people would try to deny that it was an issue for for a long time. Ella, any thoughts? It's a particularly interesting one, the question of class in this, because. On the one hand, it is true that the anti-Brexit sentiment has been directly expressed in class terms, whether that be cartoons in The Guardian of, you know, kind of slobbering, idiotic, Burberry-dressed voters saying stupid things, right up to the speeches from politicians talking about disinformation and people being misled and people not knowing what they were voted for and all those kinds of things are it's, it's essentially an us and them argument of, of old. I mean, mm. you can draw historical comparisons with it quite easily. On the other hand, I think the interesting thing to question is you've had a a betrayal of people's vote for three and a half years and you've had a very class-loaded, very kind of elitist discussion about the nature of voting, the power of ordinary people to have a voice. And yet you haven't quite had, the only means through which Brexit voters have expressed themselves is in the ballot box. You haven't had mass protests out. You haven't had people uh, going out and pulling up paving stones and stoning those idiots on the Remain marches, not advocating (laughs) for that, but you know (laughs) that you haven't had that kind of antagonism that you would expect. And that doesn't mean I don't think people haven't felt angry. They really have. 
And I really have, we all have. But I think that's the challenge going forward is it's true that we have an electorate that's been betrayed. Yes, we've won in the end to a certain extent. Let's not pretend like Boris Johnson's deal is something kind of out of heaven. It's not perfect. But the question of how we go forward with that, I think, quite positive antagonism that, as Tom said, the clear distinction between us and them, mm. maybe reigniting a discussion about class, maybe mm. talking about it in new terms, you know, because as you previously said, yes, I'm on the same side of the battle as Marc Francois. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, what the yeah. hell? But there you are. And so maybe it's more complicated than class. So I think the, the picture is difficult, but in a way that I think is quite could be quite productive. And finally, I mean, let's talk a bit about what matters now after Brexit Day, after 11pm on the 31st of January. Naya, what are your thoughts? Obviously, we still have the withdrawal agreement. And so that's obviously a really significant um, issue in terms of what our relationship with the European Union is going to be. And I have heard some people say, you know, are we going to have a kind of subservient relationship where they're going to kind of still dictate, but we don't have a say. And so that kind Mm. of question of the level playing field is still going to be really, really fundamental going forward. So I think what relationship we're going to have going forward is going to be really important. But also what we've been talking about now, that we have the levers of power in this country you know the politicians cannot blame the European Union for all of the issues and so they have to take responsibility Mm. in terms of really fulfilling the kind of spirit of Brexit in terms of taking back more control and so that goes to the questions that we've been discussing in terms of the House of Lords the Constitution the Supreme Court which I think are going to be um, issues that are going to play out really significantly. Tom? In terms of where to go from here. It's just quite clear about making sure that we kind of deepen this democratic awakening that has, that's happened, you know, mm. trying to make sure it has more force, you know, because talking about the kind of struggle for democracy, it's, it's, there's almost two parts of it. There's a struggle to get the vote and then there's a struggle to make it meaningful. And I yeah. think Brexit is definitely a part of that second chapter insofar as you've nominally have the vote, but there's vast swathes of areas of political and social life, which you just can't impact on because you're not allowed to. And I think trying to, on the domestic front, really deepen that. And I completely agree with the point about it is also making sure that our own elites don't have the excuse of just blaming it on Brussels and also we're able to hold them much more closely to account and that we're able to carve out institutions that are far more responsive to what people want. This can't be the end point. You know, yeah. we do have to start talking about the House of Laws. We do have to start talking about proportional representation and more importantly, I think, or at least, you know, in tandem with all of that, is a politics which can really kind of rise to the moment, you know, mm. which can connect with people, which can kind of deepen that radical democratic spirit that has emerged over the past couple of years. So I think that, again, it's a point we've made a million times, but this really is only the beginning because there's just so many opportunities that's been thrown up by this. I think it's an exciting time, but not a time to rest on our laurels because the fact is the Conservative Party have managed to get this through with the support of the electorate. But as Boris Johnson says, he wants to get Brexit done and then he doesn't want to talk about it anymore. And they don't want to carry this forward into any kind of radical discussion about the House of Lords or the future of British politics. They want to get it done and then everyone to be quiet and let's start having a row about HS2 or something like that. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But the interesting thing is that, that, you know, these parties that, let's not forget that the parties that we have at the moment, the Conservative Party and Labour Party, have had deep-seated problems way before Brexit. And Mm. Brexit has brought all of those problems to light. I think this upcoming period should just be a time for real experimentation. That's already happened with the red wall siding with the Conservatives, people changing their votes, people deciding to lend their votes one period of voting and then change it the next. I think all of that, creating as much as we can, a kind of a space for something new to come about is the way to go. Because if the one positive thing that's come out of Brexit is that 
Tina, there is no alternative, is over. There is an alternative. There is life outside the European Union. Um, now we've got to figure out what it looks like. You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.